From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Margaret Weikert's replacement as Deputy Director for Management, at least for now, is official. The Acting Director of the Office of Personnel Management, Michael Regas, will be acting DDM, too. FCW reports Regas has been acting OPM director since Dale Cabinus resigned last week. The new coronavirus stimulus bill would let President Trump extend the tenures of top military leaders who could retire in the middle of the response to the virus. Air Force Chief General David Goldfein, Space Force Chief General Jay Raymond, and other leaders eligible to retire could stay up to 270 days after their scheduled retirement dates. Breaking Defense reports the bill also includes almost $10 billion for the Defense Department to fight COVID-19. The federal government has spent at least $300 million so far on coronavirus response. An analysis by the Pulse of GovCon finds spending under NAICS codes related to COVID-19 includes more than $11 million on supplies like disinfectants, gloves, and hand sanitizer. NextGov reports the total is likely incomplete because it doesn't include items agencies mark with other codes. Agencies across government are implementing new policies and procedures to follow the Office of Personnel Management's guidelines for telework. Voice of America started the process of transitioning to telework in early February. It already has more than 75% of its staff working from home. Amanda Bennett is director of Voice of America. Amanda, thanks very much for coming on. Tell me about the timeline here. What caused you to start thinking about having your people working remotely? And how did you go about doing it, checking infrastructure and verifying capabilities and so on? Well, you know, we what Voice of America does is we broadcast to over 80 countries and 47 languages. So we're broadcasting all over the world. And so in late January, we actually started experiencing people on our staff coming back from Wuhan. So we knew we had to do something right away. So we started a voluntary quarantine program in early January. And at that point, we were looking ahead. And I think that's the big difference in what we did. We started looking ahead and saying, we can see what's going on in China. We think it's gonna happen here too. So we, in early February, as you said, started a, we, we worked on a four part plan, which is let's plan for right now and see what we're gonna need to do and work all the way forward to phase four, which we're not in yet, where we're gonna completely be shut down. So that was what we did because we could see, we could see it happening. What are the phases that you looked at in between phase one and phase four, that complete shutdown that you just alluded to, Amanda? So we didn't know what capability we had to work totally remotely. We do television, we do radio, we do digital operations. And so all of those things are heavily dependent on physical location. Like you, we broadcast out of studios, we use satellites, we use very heavy duty equipment. So we didn't actually know if we could do it or not. So our first phase was to do an inventory do an inventory of the staff, their skill set, their digital capability, their home com uh, computer capability, you know, what our own software capability was. So we did this inventory at the first phase. And then the second phase, we started implementing it slowly. We started the digital team. We spent a day, we had sent the entire digital team home to practice, to see what we needed to know. And we found lots of things from that and we improved and then little by little, we started sending our smaller television services, the ones that only have two or three people in them, home to work remotely. And so the second phase was kind of practice and implementation. 
Now, we're in the third phase right now, and actually I'm happy to say that we're actually better than what you said now. We're somewhere between, I'm gonna guess, 85 and 90% remote right now, and we have not yet had to cancel any shows. So we're doing about 1,000 hours of broadcast a week completely from people's homes. What have you learned about productivity of employees working remotely? One of the big concerns about telework all across government and the private sector too has been, I'm not sure managers say that my team is going to produce at the level that they did when they're here in the office. What are you seeing? I mean, obviously you've got deadlines to hit, so it's important that the stuff that needs to get done gets done. Well, and as a matter of fact, I just sent a note to the staff this morning just about that because I sent them an article that said that federal government employers are concerned about, you know, goofing off at home. And I said, my concern about you guys is exactly the opposite. My concern about you guys is you're going to be working 24 seven mm -hmm. because what we saw is our productivity, our creativity, the leadership, um, the uh, kind of ingenuity in finding solutions to complicated pro problems, that's all increased. And we've just been so amazed and pleased to see the number of leaders that are emerging from the ranks just to take charge of things spontaneously. So we're not seeing any goofing off at all. As a matter of fact, we're seeing the opposite. Yeah, what, what I'm finding that people are telling me anecdotally that you're confirming through that story, Amanda, is that there are lessons that you're learning that will change the way that you do business when this is all over. And when you theoretically could go back to normal operations the way they were before, you probably won't because of things that you've learned. Are there a couple of things like that that you've pulled out in particular that you already know you'll do differently moving forward? Well, I in the first week, I said that in the first week we learned more and did more than we could have done in a year without this because we moved a lot of operations to the cloud, we took things away from heavy duty um, physical equipment that needs to be tended all the time and did them, created some more remote workflows. So we've now got the ability to um, do a lot of stuff remotely that we didn't have before, which in turn for television, surprisingly enough, gives us better, um, better programming because mm -hmm. since we can't do things in the studio, our anchors were going out and doing shows from the mall or doing shows from in front of a hospital or doing, doing shows outside and it became way more interactive and way more engaging and we found that our audiences liked it better. Mm -hmm. um, we just have about a minute left, Amanda, and we talk all the time on this program about unintended consequences. It strikes me this is a chance to turn that around 180 degrees. There are unintended benefits that organizations can learn. What do you think some of those will be uh, that you will keep doing moving forward operationally, not content-wise, but operation from a management perspective? Well, you know, the one thing that's specific to government is we did find that a lot of the things, we have some procedures that are they're really slow to get things done, to, to buy things, to change employment status. And we found that our managers inside VOA uh, we're very creative in saying, let's go and look at what things we can do that we haven't been doing before that are completely legal, they're just simplified. So we've gotten ourselves onto a much faster track just to do the physical operational things than we were. And so before people would say, oh, well, it's slow because it's government. It turned out it was slow because we weren't optimizing our use of the things that we could do completely mm. legally. Amanda, you have a team of great broadcasters at VOA. I'm uh, appreciative of hearing how you're working through this crisis. Thanks very much for coming on. And thank you.
Up next, a new approach to federal hiring reform. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a holistic approach to fixing some of government's biggest people problems. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The National Commission on National Military and Public Service has new recommendations for public service. Those recommendations include a new dedicated service council in the White House, changes to federal hiring practices, and an expanded selective service registration. Terry Gertens, president and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. Bill Valdez is president of the Senior Executives Association. Friends, welcome. Thanks for coming on in this unusual time. Terry, I'll start with you. What is your main takeaway from this work from the commission? Well, I think there are a couple of things that are obvious as soon as you look at the report. One is how thorough they were, how widely they reached, but also the fact that they didn't shy away from things that are sort of politically sensitive. So they've given us a really comprehensive package of reforms and they've um, matched it with some draft legislative language that may make it even easier to implement. Bill, what was your takeaway from this work? Uh, my big takeaway was that it really put a sharp focus on the need to improve public awareness of uh, public service in all of its many forms. And what I really most appreciated was that they provided a definition for it and a call to arms. Um, their notion that when 22% of American adults cannot name any of the three branches of a government, it is well past time to, you know, for the country to take action should be a clarion call to all of us. Bill, of the proposals and recommendations the commission makes, what of these do you think are, would be the easiest to implement or could happen the fastest? I think the civic awareness, for sure. Um, you know, uh, they very helpfully uh, provided uh, in the report a legislative uh, summary of you know of the of the bill that they hope Congress will take up. And the first title of it is to raise the awareness of uh, public service in the American you know in the American people uh, through civics education and things like that. And then they step into the more difficult parts, which is um, how do you actually implement, uh, you know, uh, certain aspects of the, uh, including things like uh, civil service reform and, um, you know, changes to the draft and those kinds of issues. Terry, what do you think would be the easiest of these recommendations to implement to make happen the way that the commission outlined them? I think one of the first and easiest things to do would be to create that coordinator in the White House, perhaps in the Domestic Policy Council, that would integrate all of the different public service programs across the government, everything from the Peace Corps to the things that they propose, like a, a student sort of uh, civil service corps for the, that approximates ROTC. But you could put that um, coordinator into the White House just uh, without any sort of implementing legislation. And that would be a start to signal how important that um, that function is going to be. And I think certainly as we come out of this current uh, economic crisis, having someone there that can coordinate the entry paths into public service would be a huge benefit. Terry, are there other items that you see here that could be implemented without the legislative language that Bill talked about that somebody in the administration could say we're going to do this and they could actually do it? Sure. I think one of the things that, that is really interesting to me is the cross-service coordination that they propose. So, for example, um, in military recruiting offices, when you have someone who 
wants to enlist in the military but might not be qualified for a number of reasons, simply adding a piece to that that says, but you could serve in the civil service um, and have a referral process so that people who are service-minded um, and know about the military but might not know about these other modes of service could easily be referred. Um, that's something, again, that doesn't really require legislation. Bill, there are, the, what Terry's talking about is something that you and the, all three of us and individually we've talked about a number of times over the years, and that's just the ability of the government to know what possibilities exist, what opportunities exist in other parts of the government. Historically, the government hasn't been good at that. Do you see the potential here for this to be a facilitator for that kind of thing, for things like reciprocity for a screening and hiring and things like that? Uh, absolutely. And uh, the timing of the report, you know, uh, ironically, couldn't be more uh, uh, important because of the coronavirus epidemic, which has made, you know, the need for government to work together, to share best practices, to understand where the fissures exist in our ability to work together cooperatively. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, what the uh, task what the commission has done in a very uh, important way is expose the fact that the federal government uh, is critical to our national uh, interests and uh, that we need it to be highly functioning and the suggestions that they have in the report to make it high functioning are exactly the things that we have talked about over the course of the few year, the past few years. We just have a couple of minutes left, folks, and I want to ask you the same thing I always ask when I see work like this that's valuable, and that is, what happens? Who has to do what? Bill, I'll start with you, to make sure that this doesn't just become a white paper that sits on a hard drive somewhere or sits on a desk in a binder and doesn't ever turn into anything. Well, it, it's incumbent on Congress at first, for, first of all, to take this seriously. And we know they're distracted, uh, but uh, we hope that we will be able, and when I say we, it's the coalition of good government groups that NAPA and SEA and uh, others belong to, including the Volcker Alliance and the Partnership for Public Service. Uh, we need to get Congress to take this seriously. And I would just note uh, that Terry and I are also involved in an effort uh, with the Robertson Foundation for, the, uh, for Government uh, to build a coalition that is focused on public service that will support this report in many different ways. Terry, my sincere apologies. We're out of time, but I thank both of you for coming on today. Uh, appreciate Always it. Always a pleasure, Francis. Thank, thank you. you. Up next, filling in the gaps on guidance for telework. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what your agency hasn't thought of yet. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The National Institute of Standards and Technology could soon have new guidance for federal employees on telework. The director of NIST's Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, Jeff Green, says new guidance could reflect updates in telework technology and practices. Ari Schwartz is managing director of cybersecurity services at Venable, former special assistant president and senior director for cybersecurity. Ari, welcome. Thanks for coming on. What do you expect to see in this guidance? What is kind of the missing link right now in cyber protections and telework? 
Well, I think that some of it has to do with how uh, the, the identity piece is here. That um, in four years ago, when NIST put out this same guidance, um, we didn't quite have as many sets of uh, multi-factor tools on the market that we do today. So there's a really much more heavy reliance on PIB cards, et cetera, um, and uh, that the smart cards that are used in general. So, uh, and smart card readers, and now we have other technologies that allow multi-factor to be just as secure, uh, if not more secure. One of the things that agencies have talked about a year or so ago, the Pentagon uh, started looking at the possibility of what's next after the CAC. Is this an opportunity to maybe drive other changes that we haven't been thinking about up till now or haven't been thinking about as much up till now? Yeah, I think it, it is. I think there's a lot that can be done actually in that regard. Um, Toward, uh, towards more flexible uh, means of security and, and other choices beyond the CAC. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we see things like uh, these YubiKey tokens and other kinds of tokens that allow for pretty strong security at the same time as a little bit more flexibility and not having to have a card reader in, in every device. One of the things that we've been seeing reports of is challenges with infrastructure setups. What's your sense of the role that cybersecurity is playing in, in not causing those infrastructure shortcomings, but at least um, showing agencies this is a place that we have a bit of a gap and this is something that we need to shore up as quickly as possible. Yeah, I, I do think that uh, um, we, we have this issue where uh, you can't trust anything fully anymore that's connecting to your network. And uh, you hear this term over and over again in cybersecurity world today, zero trust. And I think uh, the remote world having zero trust is, is difficult. And uh, but now we have a lot more tools in that space. Um, and so I hope that uh, that moving forward we can start taking advantage of more of those kind of zero trust tools. So what what do those tools look like in a almost completely remote environment? Voice of America was on the program earlier. They're working 85, 90 percent of their workforce is working remotely. We're hearing stories across agencies that are half empty or more. Um, what what does a zero trust environment look like and what are the tools that will enable that to work? I'm not talking about even classified environments, just exchanging information that agencies exchange every day. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot more virtualization. Um, I mean, we see this already with bring your own device as well. So it is, this goes beyond just telework and, and uh, NIST, in the last version of the this guidance, NIST did actually uh, um, start to get more at that. But I think there's been a, even more improvement in the tools uh, for how we sandbox and how we virtualize uh, in as we enter in, in, in uh, the kind of bring your own and, and device and remote work environments. So I love that phrase. I'm glad you brought it up. I didn't bring you on to talk about BYOD, but when you were in government, that was a hot topic. That was something that people talked about on an ongoing basis. I haven't heard that term on this program seriously in a couple of years. Does that mean, <clears throat> excuse me, that it's not important to talk about it anymore? Does that mean it's not a thing anymore? Or does it mean something else other than those two things, Ari? Uh, I think that, it, that we, if, if you truly believe in zero trust, then it doesn't matter, right? Whether it's your own device, <clears throat> whether it's or whether you're on on prem, so that's I think the that's really what we've sort of moved past the idea that it matters. Um, that basically uh, because of the advanced threats we've been seeing, uh, you can't trust anyone. So it doesn't really matter that using that term terminology right now hasn't been as important um, as uh, getting at the uh, the more basic idea of doing 
true risk management about every person that's on the network. CISA has been doing a lot of work in telework uh, as well here in verifying certainly the network at DHS and working with other agencies. Is this potentially an opportunity for them to demonstrate their capabilities for the government-wide enterprise and not just for DHS? I, I actually think it is, and I think that's part of the, what we're talking about here with this is taking that guidance, integrating it in with what CIS is doing and how they work with agencies on a regular basis and help agencies make decisions and risk and do their risk management internally. And you see that from some of the OMB guidance that came out this week as well. I mean, uh, they put out a guidance on a memo literally on Sunday uh, that went into detail about all the flexi new flexibility that they're providing to people while still uh, focusing on security at OMB. And that feeds into this, uh, the role of CISA and um, how CISA is uh, going to help make more tools available across agencies. We have about 30 seconds left, Ari. We talk about cyber hygiene all the time, you and I. How much of the challenge that all this remote work presents is just basic cyber hygiene? Uh, I'd say a, a lot of it is. I mean, there's some things that, um, you know, even even going beyond cyber hygiene, you know, NIST also did a, a good blog post uh, on the conference call hygiene, right? We did, which we don't even think about, but it's so important in this kind of environment, right? You need to know that you're not using the same number that someone else is going to use right after you, and people can can easily get access to it and listen in. Um, that you're not creating open calls for people just to hang out. That you're not accidentally leaving. Uh, uh, you're leaving open areas without passwords when you're having more confidential calls, knowing how confidential the information is. So, uh, I mean, and that's just truly basic uh, interactions. But then when it comes to computing and remote computing, there's a whole bunch more that uh, you have to think about. Um, and uh, I think that a lot of this is taking the guidance that this has already put out there and simplifying it in a way that people can uh, digest at when they're just starting to work from home for the first time. Ari Schwartz, thanks very much, my friend. Thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.